Hey everybody, it's David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. Our guest last week, Hillary Clinton, ended up making some news. It's not the purpose of this podcast. We really want to go deep into the race, both primary and general, but I think she had some very um, interesting and noteworthy things to say, so uh, my phone was was blowing up. I, I did think it was a fascinating conversation with Hillary Clinton. I, th- I think, you know, there's debate about, you know, is Tulsi Gabbard or was Jill Stein a Russian asset? Were they just supported by the Russians? Uh, and that's, a, you know, an important debate. I, I think what I really got from Hillary Clinton is she just went through a presidential race. She won the national popular vote, lost the Electoral College narrowly. One of the factors was third party support. Um, there's no doubt that uh, that had a factor. And I think as I look at this next election, I don't think Donald Trump is likely to be able to get 49 percent or 49.5 or 50 percent in the battleground states. He's going to have to be able to win this race. You know, he won Wisconsin with 46.2, Michigan with 46.5, really low numbers. And so I think Hillary Clinton's concern is that Donald Trump is going to do everything he can and his allies in Moscow and, and other foreign capitals who want to see a weak, uh, cartoonish president uh, continue to lead America to try and, you know, incentivize people to run third party, to provide uh, financial support, a lot of that indirectly, a lot of bot activity. So while it was a flashpoint around Tulsi Gabbard specifically, and I think it's useful for for Tulsi Gabbard and other candidates to get asked what they're going to do if they're not the Democratic nominee, because I I do think we want as clean as field as possible to to run against Donald Trump. I do think this question deserves an enormous amount of attention. That core to Donald Trump's strategy to get reelected is to make sure that there is at least one, if not multiple, third party voices who are getting a lot of support you know, from outside the United States. There's no doubt, I think, that that is going to be core to his strategy. And I think the way he tries to define the democratic field as, you know, in favor of infanticide and, you know, you're not going to be allowed to eat beef anymore or fly on planes, all this crazy stuff. There's a diabolical strategy behind it, which is to to make enough Americans think, well, I'm not going to vote for Trump, but I'm not going to vote for the Democrat. And so it's important that, you know, he have a third party destination for those voters. The other, I think, interesting debate um, that didn't emanate from our, our podcast, although Hillary Clinton's been part of the conversation, as you've had the New York Times and, and Washington Post, among others, write stories over the last 48 hours about nervous Democrats who aren't sure we have our savior. And so should we look at candidates currently not in the race? First of all, we go through this pretty often as Democrats. I think in 2016, people weren't sure we had a strong candidate even in 08, where I think Democrats were pretty satisfied with with Obama and Clinton and member John Edwards, you know, there was nervous around electability. We had a lot of that in 2004, a lot of that in 2000, a lot of that with Bill Clinton in 92. So so I, I, my personal belief is, one, I don't see that there's an ability right now for anyone to come in. You've got, you know, whether it's Warren, Sanders, Buttigieg, Biden, you know, they have a lot of support. Um, And so for someone to come in late right now, I'm not sure there's an opening, number one. Number two, I think the only way there would be an opening is if, you know, a couple of the candidates completely fell apart and got out of the race or lost their vote support. And, you know, that's unlikely to happen between now and the filing deadlines. So filing deadlines are when candidates have to file paperwork and other requirements to actually get on the ballot in primaries. And so you've got to make that decision really over the next five weeks. So, uh, you know, my guess is the field then will be as it is now, uh, which is, you know, you have a bunch of people running who, you know, still have decent support levels. So I'm not sure there's an opening. And the other thing I'd say is whoever comes out of this process will look stronger than they do right now because they will have vanquished this field. It's a big field. It's a complicated field. There's talent in the field. And by definition, they're going to look stronger having vanquished it uh, and having be the one person standing between Donald Trump and a second term. So everybody can make their own determinations about this. But I don't think it's really a, a fruitful use of effort or mind space to be worrying about, is there a political savior out there who will waltz into this race, win the nomination easily, and beat Donald Trump easily? I think one of the people who's currently running now will be the nominee, and we're all going to have to do all we can to help them once they've secured the nomination uh, to win a very, very close, bitter, tough race. You know, we see more polls out this week that shows Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren and Sanders, uh, with Biden clearly being the strongest in these matchups, but, but everybody beating Donald Trump. But I think um, we should be careful about that because 
Donald Trump, I do think, is going to overperform in some of the battleground states. I think he's going to drive historically high turnout uh, and registration. And so um, I think we're destined to have a really close fight, uh, probably a really ugly fight. And so I think our, our focus should be on, I think, the people running, not folks who aren't running, who, again, I think even if we had somebody, if you could you know, snap your fingers magically uh, and they'd be our strongest candidate. You know, we've got people running who are raising money and building organization and securing commitments of support. And so I don't think that all falls away when somebody jumps in at the last minute. Um, But this happens to Democrats, it seems, every four years. Um, I think it's particularly acute this time because folks obviously cannot fathom another four years of Donald Trump. Um, And I violently agree with that. Um, But I think we're going to have to beat him with one of the candidates on the field right now. And again, I think whoever ends up navigating themselves through this primary will look stronger on the other end. Our guest today is actually going to help us, I think, understand a little bit more about what the presidential primary process is and what it's not. This is a battle to acquire enough delegates to get the Democratic nomination. I get that that's not sexy. It's not as easy to understand as who won the most states or who won the big states, but that's what this is. Just as the presidential race in in next November is only about one thing. Did you get 270 electoral votes? Um, That's all it is. And if you don't, you lose. If you don't get enough delegates, uh, you're not going to be the nominee. And so it can seem complex and complicated. I think when we break it down, you'll have a better understanding of it. And we're going to be joined by Jeff Berman. Uh, Jeff is actually currently helping out Better O'Rourke. In fact, I talked to him. He was down in El Paso. But he um, was Barack Obama's delegate director. I worked incredibly closely with him in in 2008. Uh, He served the same role for Hillary Clinton in 2016. And nobody in the country that I've come across knows more about the Democratic delegate process, how they're awarded, the differences between primaries and caucuses. He's really going to take you deep into thinking about the state primaries, not as one election, but as a bunch of elections, because delegates are awarded both at the statewide level based on your performance, but also at the congressional district or state senate level. Um, We're also going to spend some time talking about different scenarios, because with a field this big, there's no guarantee that we're going to have somebody emerges who wins the majority of the pledged delegates, the, the delegates awarded based on how well you do in primaries and caucuses. And so we're going to talk about some of those scenarios and how that may play out. Um, So I think this is a really important conversation. For those of you that are supporting a candidate with your time or your money, if you're following this carefully, you can't follow this based on who won Iowa and who came in second in Iowa and who uh, won South Carolina and who won California. Um, What matters is are people putting together the kind of campaign operation and the national support they need to win enough delegates. So this is the scoreboard that matters. And so um, I'd encourage all of you to listen to Jeff and and, and follow along over the the coming weeks and months uh, as hopefully the media spends more time on delegates because ultimately that's what matters. Um, And I think it's particularly interesting as you think about so much of the attention rightfully is on the first four states. Um, But once you get out of South Carolina, a two week period between March 3rd and March 17th, um, most of the country votes most of the delegates are going to be awarded. Uh, And Jeff's going to take us deep into that two-week period so you have a a better understanding of the states that are going to be voting and how that process may play out from a delegate standpoint. So we're joined by Jeff Berman. Nobody knows more about delegates and how we actually choose a Democratic nominee than Jeff. Jeff, thanks for being with us today. Happy to be here, David. So I want to spend most of the time in 2020, but... It'd probably be helpful for people to understand where these things called delegates came from. My understanding is, uh, you know, the reforms that happened after the 1968 campaign and convention, we had someone in Hubert Humphrey who hadn't even entered any primaries or caucuses chosen, you know, kind of by the party bosses. Big change came after that, and we started to put much more power in the hands of voters. But would love to hear from your standpoint, kind of the origin of delegates. Yeah, there there has been an evolution in the system. Uh, the way we pick delegates to the national convention to nominate the presidents is not set in law. It's not set in the Constitution. So it really is a process that is driven by the political party, by the national party. Uh, of course, today we have two parties, and they each have their own sets of rules. Um, that national set of rules, though, meshes with uh, state party rules and then also state laws uh, because of 
almost all of the primaries are actually run by the state government. Uh, the governments have the right to set their own rules on how they conduct their primaries. But it's the party, though, that determines how the results of the primary are reflected in the delegate allocations to the candidates. Um, and when you mention uh, the history of this, um, for many decades, uh, the delegates were really picked by the uh, the party leadership in each of the states. And it could be governors, big city mayors, party chairs, uh, senior senators, uh, some combination of them. It, it, each state was totally different. Some states had political machines that turned out votes and had uh, a lot of influence in how the state allocated its delegates within the state party structure, the Democratic Party structure. And so up until the 1960s, that's the way the system was. And the voters had some opportunities to uh, influence the process. There were uh, a handful of primaries, uh, depending on the cycle down through the years, again, prior to the 1960s. And those primaries really were occasions for the candidates to sort of show their stuff to the voters. But the vast majority of the delegates actually weren't selected through primaries, but just through meetings of the party leaders to determine where they were going to send their delegates in terms of presidential candidates. Right. This all came to a head uh, starting in 1964 in Mississippi when there was an all-white delegation and there was a reform movement uh, to select black delegates uh, to the national convention. And this was during the Lyndon Johnson era, and there was a resolution of that that did allow uh, the delegation to be integrated to a degree, and that really kicked off something when we got to 1968 with all of the uh, disruption of the uh, Vietnam War and uh, various social and cultural movements. Uh, there was a real desire for the voters to have more impact on the process rather than letting the leaders in each of the states determine who the delegates were going to be for at the national convention. And after that riotous 1968 convention, that's when the modern period began. Uh, we had uh, reform commissions, and actually over the years we've had one after the other. You and I actually served on one after the Obama election in 2008. And um, those reforms that were adopted after the 1968 convention largely are the rules under which we operate today. Uh, and for the Democratic Party, that means the delegates are allocated in accordance with the preference of the voters in each of the states, not the party leadership, and that uh, we have various rules to make sure that that process runs smoothly. And uh, so that's really the genesis of the modern and, and the current system. Right. That's your problem. And there was another evolution between 2016 and now on superdelegates, which we'll talk about in a minute. But talk about that. You mentioned that delegates are now awarded um, based on the results of elections. So let's talk about primaries first. So New Hampshire is a primary, South Carolina is a primary, big state like California. So people vote. Candidates get a certain percentage. Talk about how those delegates are ultimately awarded. Um, and it's important for folks to understand you've got uh, delegates awarded based on statewide performance as well as down to the congressional district level. Yeah, right. That, that's a great point you're making. <clears throat> the, uh, the delegates are elected primarily at the district level. And in the Democratic Party, what that means at the congressional district level or a more local level in the congressional district, and the state party uh, determines that level. But in almost all the states, it's at the congressional district level. In Texas, though, on the other hand, it's at the state senate district uh, level. That is, those boundaries of the state senate district are the boundaries of the group of voters that will determine uh, the allocation of delegates from that district. And each state party basically uh, takes about two-thirds of the delegates and allocates them to the different districts in the state, and mostly in, in accordance with Democratic voting strength. 
But the reality is that uh, in each congressional congressional district, it's somewhere between four and eight delegates. There's a few handful that have three, a handful that have nine, ten, or even a little more. But basically, it falls in that four to eight category, really kind of even four to six or seven, or most of them. You mentioned it's based on strength. So let's talk about that in a minute. So a district that has eight or nine is that because that is a congressional district where Democrats perform really well as opposed to one that might have three or four where so it's based on the strength of Democratic performance in recent elections is that right yeah it's actually uh, I think you hit upon uh, part of it but it, it's really there are certain districts right that have a lot of Democrats in them and then there are other districts that are primarily Republican and then there is what what is the level of turnout? that the Democrats in the district perform at. So districts that are heavily Democratic, which could be urban districts, I mean, you could go through and try and describe demographic characteristics of those uh, districts that you would expect to be Democratic districts. Uh, That's a key, key component of how many delegates they'll get. But also, there are certain districts and demographic groups that tend to turn out in higher percentages. So uh, those districts would would have more delegates. The sort of more rural, Republican-leaning districts, that's where you're going to see the lower votes. Or in districts where the voters in those districts... Uh, for whatever reason, don't turn out at at high levels compared to other districts. So after a primary, candidates will be awarded delegates based on their performance both at a statewide level and then down in most states, CD, in Texas, you know, state senate district. And talk a little bit about the difference as it relates to caucuses. So states like Iowa, Nevada, Washington State, many are caucuses. And I think one big difference there, and, and you helped lead this effort for us in 2008, is Election night is just the beginning of the process to make sure you secure your delegates because there's many more steps after that. Yeah. When, when you talk about caucuses, uh, this is uh, brings up an important point that I want to make really kind of here at the outset, which is that every presidential cycle is different. It's different because we have different election environments. We have different calendars. That is, the order of the voting in the states can vary every four years. Uh, We obviously have a different set of candidates. We may have a large field or a small field. We may have uh, a crowded lane uh, in different types of Democratic candidates. And, uh, And of course, we have different rules potentially every four years. So when we come to caucuses, there, there are some changes for 2020. And so you and I, we, we uh, definitely, we were very involved in planning and executing for caucuses in 2008. But I will say this, in 2008, there were seven caucus states on Super Tuesday with 229 delegates. And uh, President Obama sharply outperformed in those states, and, and that was a key element of our strategy and really for the, one of the ways that we won that nomination. But as we look at 2020, there's really virtually no caucuses on Super Tuesday. Uh, it's really uh, – there's one territory uh, with six delegates uh, that, are, uh, that is a caucus state on Super Tuesday. So – we have to realize that you know every cycle is a new analysis, a new assessment. Um, also, the rules in how we um, how we hold uh, our caucuses have changed. So, in the past, uh, you would go to the caucus, you would have to show up and cast your uh, and, and cast your vote in the caucus. Today, for this cycle, for the first time, we're going to have absentee uh, caucus participation of one type or another in each of the remaining caucus states. And there are very few caucus caucus states remaining. Most of the caucus states, rather than deal with absentee procedures, uh, have basically decided to opt to use primaries in those states. And that's one of the reasons why, as I just mentioned, we really have no caucus states on Super Tuesday. And uh, that definitely changes uh, the the political battlefield, so to speak, uh, compared to what we saw in 2008.
So it would probably be interesting for folks who may not thoroughly understand caucuses just to describe the differences between a caucus and primary so they get some sense of the meaningful difference we're going to see in 2020 with fewer caucuses in totality and none on Super Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, the key uh, feature, I think, sort of from an election perspective, uh, the difference between a caucus and a primary has to do with the fact that a primary, every neighborhood has a voting place. You go, you cast a secret ballot. It's your, it's the same procedure you use to vote in general elections, really all your other elections. So every voter really knows where to go and how to do it. With a caucus, it's different. It's more of a, like a community meeting. And Iowa holds the classic uh, caucus, but so does Nevada and a very few other states now. But the, the classic uh, format is uh, people within the precinct meet at a certain location and uh, they just divide up among the presidential candidates. And it's a public division of presidential preference. Everyone in your neighborhood essentially sees who you support or you don't support. And so it's a different kind of a process. Sometimes it takes a while. It can take, could take an hour. It could take two hours. Depends whether people are making speeches, whether there's any procedural difficulties, if there's difficulty counting the room. In some cases, so many people might turn up for a caucus at a precinct. They don't even fit in the room. There have been times where they've had to go outside and do the meeting in the parking lot. And so you can see that uh, it's a little more kind of time-consuming, complicated, takes a little more commitment on the part of the participant. And as a result, the turnout tr traditionally is lower. It's a more select group of people that will participate in the caucus rather than just going, quickly casting their uh, secret uh, primary vote, you know, at the voting machine in a primary. And so what you have then is a more select group of participants in the Democratic Party. What that means in the past has been a more activist, more progressive group of participants than you would see in the primary, which would draw a broader group of voters of uh, a, a, a broader range of views, philosophies, ideologies, what have you. So it's a different group. Which means because it is lower turnout if you're a candidate, like we in 08 had the ability, uh, you know, Barack Obama brought a lot of young people out, people who traditionally hadn't participated. So because you're dealing with an overall small pie, if you're bringing a lot of new voters to the table, you know, it can have an outsized effect, harder to do, you know, in a, in a large turnout election like a primary. So I think one thing folks should understand is the only way to build big delegate margins is to basically win states and districts by big margins. So, you know, part of the presidential campaign is momentum, and, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But in terms of the acquisition of delegates, you know, if, if basically, you know, two candidates are getting 40 percent of the vote, you're splitting the delegates. You know, even if somebody wins narrowly, so maybe they get the momentum victory, but they're not really getting a delegate yield. So talk a little bit about that, um, because that really... The person in this campaign, to the extent we have somebody who builds a lead in pledge delegates, is going to get there because they are winning by, if not landslide, big margins in more places than the rest of the field. Yeah, the the uh, the ability to accumulate delegates in a proportional system such as ours is 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 limited, as you said. I mean. When you have multiple candidates breaking the 15% threshold, and we haven't really spoken much about it, but you need to get at least 15% of the vote in your district, in a district, to be entitled to any delegates from that district. Remember I said there might be anywhere from four to eight. Well, you're not getting any unless you get 15% of the vote. And that same 15% threshold applies to the remaining delegates, about one-third of the state's total, uh, that are selected on a statewide basis. In a state like California, with 53 congressional districts, there's actually 54 elections. Uh, there's one in each of the districts to allocate that district's delegates, and then there's the statewide election that allocates the one-third, roughly, of delegates uh, that are elected on a statewide vote basis. Um, when you're talking about a delegate, uh, I'm sorry, a district with, say, five delegates, which is a very typical uh, district, 
and you have multiple candidates, I mean, the leader is probably only getting two delegates, uh, and then the other candidates might get one, you know, that break threshold. So you could have a two-one-one-one split, which means the leader only got one more, although you, although you could look at it, well, the leader got twice as many as the other candidates. But it, when you're looking to build up numbers, it's only one more. And so it's very difficult in a proportional system to get a big head of steam to accumulate a lot of delegates, that is to accumulate a large margin over your competitors. When we were running in 2008 on the Obama team and in 2016, when there were uh, two main candidates in Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, it was one candidate against the other. And so... One of those candidates was obviously going to get a majority of the delegates because there was not going to be a dead tie uh, at the end of the whole process. But if you have a scenario where there are more than two candidates accumulating delegates, that is breaking the 15% threshold in at least some districts and states, then you know you end up with a situation where those delegates are really getting spread out and it's very hard for the leader to get a tremendous margin over the other candidates. All right, we'll come to that nightmare scenario later in our conversation, which is, you know, if not likely, at least plausible. So talk about congressional districts that do offer odd number of delegates. You know, this is something you've spent a lot of time on, you and I did a lot of thinking about this in 08. So so in a scenario, you know, it's easier maybe if there's two main candidates. So maybe it, at some point in this race, we may get down to that where there's a congressional district that has five. You know, if, if a congressional district offers four and you kind of think, well, at the end of the day, we're probably each going to get two, you may not spend as much time or money or resources there. So talk about the really importance of those odd number delegates and the types of decisions campaigns need to make because to your point, it may just be one, but if you're doing that in a lot of congressional districts, that adds up. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's that's what candidates can do, which is go after those extra delegates where they can be found. And and you're right. It's, it's simplest to talk about it in a two-candidate scenario. And oftentimes, the race ends up winnowing down to two candidates. I mean, that's, again, what we saw in 08 uh, and in 16. Um, and when you get to that situation, uh, yeah, if there's an even number of delegates, neither of the candidates in a relatively close race is going to have a big enough victory margin to get a 3-1 split, say, when there's four delegates. Uh, you know, it's almost certainly going to be a 2-2 split. And, and in that case, in that kind of a situation, the campaigns will look for districts where there's an odd number of delegates where, say, there's five delegates, you can get a 3-2 split and actually get an extra delegate rather than just the, the typical 2-2 split you'd see in a four-delegate district or a 3-3 split, you know, in a six-delegate district. And so as you get deeper into the campaign, because I think, you know, the early states, you know, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. Now, we yielded a bunch of delegates in 08 in South Carolina, as did Hillary. But, you know, you're just trying to, I think those are more momentum than delegates. But as you get deeper into the race into March and April, where you do have those congressional districts that have an odd number of delegates, what are the types of things campaigns should do to maximize their ability to be the one that gets the three, you know, in a five-delegate congressional district? Well, you know, the obvious thing is you can identify those districts that have the odd numbers of delegates where there is a chance to get a little bit of a margin. Again, in certain election scenarios, you can look at the media markets and you can look at your GOTV efforts. Mm -hmm. And uh, so basically you could try and target those districts with your resources. Staff, money, candidate time, meaning, to your point, you mentioned California has 54 elections. You know, you may ultimately, whether it's California, Illinois, Texas, Florida, you know, you're not running a statewide election, right? You are you want to do well enough statewide, but if you think the statewide numbers are generally within a range, you say what we're really going to do is is run really vigorous campaigns in a certain number of congressional districts. Yeah, I think in a state like California, which is a huge state with 
416 delegates. Um, you're looking at a state, it's so large that it has different regions, different uh, different voting uh, characteristics in different parts of the state. And so you might be targeting certain certain sections of the state where you believe that you have a better chance to do well. And it may, might not have to do that much with whether it's five delegates and an odd number versus six and an even, but I think in this part of the state, I would have unique strength because of some part of my candidacy that matches up with the voters in that district. And, and in, in many of the districts, perhaps in that region or in multiple regions. And so, you know, you have to look at the state sort of as a uh, checkerboard because they're really uh, – California is a big, diverse state with different regions, different demographics. Um, and so I think you could find a situation where multiple candidates would go in the state and be focusing on different parts of the state and, of course, overlapping and also – focusing on uh, and competing in, in some of the same areas in the state also. So talk a little bit about, you know, maybe this winnows down to two people eventually, maybe it's three, maybe it's four. But um, once somebody does become the pledge delegate leader, because you're in a proportional system, it's really hard for the other candidates to catch up. Can you talk a little bit about that? I, I think that's an underappreciated part of this is if you got out to a delegate lead, I mean, you really, really have to start losing races by big margins to give up that lead. You know, it's really two sides of the same coin. As we were just talking about, it's really hard to get a big lead, a significant lead in a proportional delegate system when you have competitive candidates. But by the same token, the, the same thing is true that it's very hard to catch up uh, when you're down. Because again, the proportionality of the delegate system sort of flattens the outcomes so that no candidate is really able to amass delegates at a high level in a competitive race. So it makes it hard to break out and move ahead, but it also makes it hard to catch up when you're behind. We talked a lot about this in 08. I think one of the best examples is, you know, we, we got out to a lead you know, in, in 2008. But, you know, you look at it, if I recall, Jeff, we lost the state of New Jersey, pretty big state, by 10 or 11 points. And, you know, Hillary, if I recall, netted seven or eight delegates. We won the Idaho caucuses, if I recall, almost 80 to 20, and we ended up netting 12. So, and even as we got deeper into that campaign, you know, we lost Pennsylvania, we lost Ohio, but the delegate difference, because we weren't getting blown out, you know, uh, as painful as those losses were, was, you know, she was maybe gaining an incremental one or two. So it's just really difficult when somebody gets the lead, right? So as, to your point, it's hard to gain it, but once you have it, it's incredibly hard for the rest of the field to, to turn that around. Yeah, that's right. That's right. In 2008, uh, through Super Tuesday, which was a massive day of voting with over 1,680 delegates at stake that day, uh, it was a virtual tie. We had a very modest lead of like a handful of delegates uh, after all of that voting. And that's after the four early states voted, uh, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, and then Super Tuesday, which was 22 states on one day. It was a virtual tie. But what happened was in the two-week period right after Super Tuesday, we still, uh, that is the Obama campaign, we had our footing, whereas the Clinton campaign was staggered at that time. They were out of money uh, and they were struggling uh you know, to see the path forward from Super Tuesday, and, and we had planned for it. And during that two-week period following Super Tuesday is when we won an extra margin of about 120 delegates. And some of those contests were caucuses, whereas you just mentioned we had some blowout wins because the Clinton campaign didn't contest them, you know, very highly compared to what we did. And, and also there were just certain states, one, uh, you know, Obama's home state of Hawaii. There were various, various states that had different characteristics that allowed us to more or less outperform the average performance. And so it was during that two-week period, we picked up that delegate lead nationally of about 120. And then there on out, we actually just tried to maintain that lead. We never could grow it any further. And... Um, the Clinton campaign, though, as, as you mentioned, they couldn't really cut into it very well 
because their wins in Ohio and uh, Pennsylvania, the Texas primary, were narrow wins, relatively narrow wins. So she was just getting a, a few more delegates than us, and we were offsetting them with some other wins in smaller states and uh, some other ways, uh, according to that. So the bottom line was she had she could never really cut into that 120 delegate lead. I don't want to take you back to too many bad memories, but we had the the situation with Florida and Michigan, which had lost it, all of their delegates uh, due to uh, rules violations, and that remained perhaps one of the doors left to her to try and really cut in to those uh, to the, our lead of about 100, 120 by getting those delegations uh, seated, where she might have sort of caught up a, a chunk of delegates on us. But we, the door remained closed. So, you know, historically, whether it's 2016 uh, with Hillary Clinton, 2008 with Barack Obama, uh, you know, John Kerry also did well in these states. The candidate who emerges as the strong leader in the African-American vote, both in the big southern states, you know, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, but, but nationally, you know, tends to have a huge advantage. Can you talk a little bit about why that is and, and how it relates to, you know, delegates at the congressional district level? Sure, sure. When you're talking about uh, the African-American community and and the delegates that are elected in states with a substantial African, African-American population and districts, uh, I would say, number one, the, the districts, particularly the urban districts that have a substantial African-American vote, uh, tend to have a very high Democratic representation. And so those districts tend to have more delegates. Um, within, uh, the, within a state, you will find those urban districts tend to have the most delegates allocated to them. Um, and also, uh, to, the, to the extent that that vote consolidates around a, a single candidate, it certainly boosts the candidacy of that candidate. And so there, there's different uh, sort of dimensions to it, but um, certainly the African-American vote in the Democratic primary is a very significant uh, vote. It's a very significant component of the primary race. And uh, now it's not always determinative that where that community votes, that that's the nominee, but it's definitely uh, a big advantage to a candidate that can marshal that support. Right, and helps them, you know, aggregate delegates. So I'm curious, Jeff, in a presidential campaign, you have to stay on top of the delegate situation. Um, of course, you know, from New York to California and everywhere in between, but also Puerto Rico and Guam. And I don't think people understand there's territories and Democrats abroad. So what type of operation do you need to build to stay on top of all this? Well, uh, it's it's kind of complicated, as, as you can imagine. Uh, the campaign, each of the presidential campaigns has to master all of the rules and laws in each of the states and territories. And it's uh, it's a big job. And uh, in terms of understanding how each process works and, and what it takes to qualify uh, to receive delegates because each state under the state's law may have various requirements to, to be eligible for the ballot on their primary. Uh, so there's a, a lot of work that goes into it. Then eventually uh, there's the selection and, and tracking of all of the delegates. Uh, so that's like a sort of another aspect to it. It's a little more political, a little less legal and regulatory. And, um, you know, and there's a strategy component to the whole thing in terms of targeting and uh, working with uh, campaign management to see the path forward and help execute that. I'm curious, you know, we, as you remember back in 08, spent a lot of time talking to the news media to try and, I think, force more of the coverage to be done through the prism of delegates, right? Less sexy than who won a state, right? Um, and you were obviously deeply involved in the Clinton effort in 16, and, and I think by that time, many of the reporters, I think, you know, were a little bit more um, up on delegates. But still, I feel like the delegate portion of this is always secondary, if not even further down, in terms of how the race is covered. It's very much about, obviously, now it's debates and money and tweets. 
But even as we get into the process, it's about who won, who came in second. Um, do you think ultimately that will change a little bit this time? Do you think just given the fact that we do have a big field, there's a chance it may not be a two-person race, even as we get deeper into March, do you think coverage of the delegates so that, you know, readers and viewers have a better understanding of how this nomination is actually going to be determined will be more at the forefront? Well, I, it, a lot depends, of course, on how the race unfolds. And if we have a situation, as an example, 2004, where John Kerry wins Iowa, wins New Hampshire, and basically rolls forward from there with incredible momentum and wins every state, then nobody ever needs to talk about delegates, right? Because, <laughs> right. you know, right. that that was the way that cycle went. But again, if you look at the 2008 uh, cycle, it's quite incredible how close that race was nationally in terms of the delegate race. And I think a lot of Americans were exposed perhaps for the first time to how the system worked and and a kind of a different kind of a math. It's not just who won the state vote, but you know, what is this delegate count? What is the national delegate count? And we have some of the major media organizations, uh, you know, who will keep that count and will be reporting on it, uh, along with the week-to-week results in different state primaries and caucuses. So do you think it's likely, and I know, you know, nobody's crystal ball is clear, but do you think it's likely we're going to have somebody who ends up with the majority of pledged delegates? Or do you think we're going to meet a situation where we've got multiple candidates all you know, accumulating delegates through the process. Now, maybe one is the plurality leader. I mean, what's your sense? I mean, could we be heading to, I know that everybody from the news media always dreams of a contested convention. It's great for ratings. Not so great to to get a nominee on the field against Donald Trump. I know there's no way to predict it, but just given the size of this field, you have a lot of history around around these early primaries and caucuses and how delegates ultimately get awarded. You think it's at least possible that we're going to have a situation where we have nobody who's a majority leader on the pledge delegates? Well, let, let me begin first. That's a very big question. Uh, let me begin first by talking about just the changes in Iowa. Iowa, as you know, is the first vote, and Iowa was where John Kerry began that run that led him all the way to the nomination without ever losing a single contest based on the momentum coming out of Iowa. And This year, for the first time, the rules are different in Iowa than they have been. And one of the important rules changes that goes toward your question is that for the first time in Iowa, they're going to report the results of the actual voting, not just the delegate allocation. If you remember earlier when I said you need at least 15% to qualify for delegates, uh, you could have a result in Iowa where we have several candidates just above the 15% threshold and maybe one or two candidates just below the 15% threshold. In an earlier cycle, the candidates below the threshold would have won no delegates. And when you looked at the results reported for Iowa, they would have been really zero. But in this case, you could have uh, leading candidates in the 20 20 plus percentage range and going down from there. And you could have uh, an additional candidate or two that is just below that 15% threshold. So you could get a cluster of candidates coming out of Iowa who are sort of relatively packed together and have not been winnowed out of the race. So the opposite of what you saw with John Kerry with getting this sort of slingshot of momentum out of Iowa, we could see a scenario where there is just a pack of candidates coming out of Iowa and in a larger pack than has ever been the case because now if you're at 14 or 13 or 12% or maybe even a little lower, you could be part of that pack that's coming forward with um, y- you know some momentum going forward in the process. And so I think you could possibly get a larger field of candidates coming out of Iowa with some measure of strength than we've ever seen before. And I will say that we've never had more than three candidates in the modern era come out of Iowa uh, having crossed that 15% threshold. So if you add one or two more candidates who might be just below the threshold, you could see actually four or even five coming out of Iowa with some measure of strength. And if we see that, uh, 
you know, you do get to more scenarios where we don't have a breakaway leader like John Kerry uh, in 2004, but instead we see multiple candidates with strengths either geographically or demographically or ideologically, uh, philosophically, being able to hold a coarse uh, group of voters and being able to break threshold in districts and and or states. And if we get that scenario, then it it becomes more challenging for the leader to get that margin of delegates that gets them to 51%, which is the margin you need to win the nomination at the national convention. So let's talk about that scenario, a scenario where three or four candidates have real strength. They basically continue deep into the calendar, March, April, May. Nobody gets out to a, a lead, and they all head into the end of the calendar and into Milwaukee with delegates. In a scenario where, so let's say there is somebody, though, who maybe they don't have the 1990, but there's a leader. They have 1,400 or 1,500 and one thing I want to talk about, an evolution in the rules between 16 and 20 is, for the first time, uh, so-called superdelegates, so party leaders, governors, senators, party chairs in states, will not vote on the first ballot in Milwaukee. It'll just be the pledge delegates, you know, that are awarded based on results of primaries and caucuses. So do you think, let's say we have somebody, you know, it's the first ballot in Milwaukee, there's three or four candidates still alive. Nobody drops out and says, all my delegates should go to Senator X or Governor X or Congressman Y. So nobody wins the first ballot. I mean, do you think it's there's a scenario where the superdelegates say they're not going to support the person who ended the process with the most pledged delegates? Maybe this is too simple, but the message that might send is, yeah, we don't have a clear majority leader in pledged delegates, but we did have somebody who ended the race, you know, in the number one position. Do you think it's possible for the superdelegates to say, despite that, we're essentially going to, you know, do something different than the will of the voters and throw our support behind a candidate who we might think is more electable or who finished the race more strongly. And again, I know there's a little bit of uh, of guesswork here, but I, I'm just, you, you know, you and I spent a lot of time thinking about this back in 08. I mean, I think it's hard to see party leaders not throwing in with a leader, even if that leader's not, you know, didn't have a majority. But, you know, there's other scenarios. Before we speculate on what will happen on a second ballot or any later ballot, I think it's also important to look at what might transpire prior to the start of the convention. So in that period leading up to the national convention, so the convention is in mid-July of 2020. The last vote is on the first Tuesday in June. So there will be a four, five, six-week period between the end of the voting and uh, the start of the convention. And I think you can really, people will be able to read the tea leaves well before the June voting. Uh, So you can even begin backing into May. I would say after uh, a major round of voting in late April in the mid-Atlantic states, at that point, most of the voting will be done. Most of the delegates around the country will be allocated and everyone within the political campaigns, the political leadership, the voters, the media, everyone will be able to see the writing on the wall as to whether or not the campaign is headed toward a majority of delegates on the first ballot for one candidate. And if that doesn't appear to be the case, I think there'll be, uh, there may well be a chance that candidates and political leaders will start talking about how how can we combine forces within the Democratic Party and among the candidates to form a ticket that can get majority support at the convention rather than waiting to the convention and doing it in the heat of the moment on the convention floor uh, among the delegates. So I think that would be one outcome that people may start thinking about when that time comes. And and if that doesn't produce a majority of delegates for a candidate, uh, yeah, then when you get to the convention itself, uh, you're going to have a situation where it could go to a second ballot. And the interesting thing about 2020 
is if it goes to a second ballot, the electorate of delegates on the second ballot is not the same as the electorate on the first ballot. Because as you said before, the automatic delegates, and I will have to tell you, I am one of them. There are 771 currently, so it's me and 770 others, will be able to vote on that second ballot. And those 771 automatic delegates won't be pledged to any candidate as the result of the primaries. And so it will be a, a larger group of delegates than we had voting on the first ballot. And whether that larger group will vote in some form of unison or whether it will fracture, just like the delegates elected by the voters, it's hard to say. But, um, you know, that that is uh, something at this point that's highly speculative. And I, I wouldn't uh, venture to guess, you know, what would happen in that scenario. I think we definitely need to focus on whether any of the candidates will be able to build this momentum to achieve the 51% on their own. Uh, and then I do believe there will be the possibility of campaigns looking at uh, how to unify the party around a ticket in the period prior to the convention. And only if, if none of that has worked would you be looking at a scenario of second and even later ballots? Right. So let's dig into that period. And I think you make a really important point. After we get through mid-April, you know, there's still a smattering of caucuses and primaries, but, you know, the vast, vast majority of states will have voted and delegates awarded. But let's say there is a scenario where we don't have somebody who's won, you know, 50 percent plus one of the pledged delegates. You know, and, and so this is fictitious. But let's say we have a scenario where you have a leader who's maybe got 40 percent and somebody else who's a strong second OS 30 and someone who maybe has 20 and there's a fourth candidate with 10. So your point in that scenario, I mean, it could be that the two leaders decide, you know, they're going to work together and the, the person who's in seconds our vice presidential nominee. Right. It could also be it's just clear that that leader is not going to lose. And we have an incumbent president who has all the advantages of having started the general election way before us. So, so whether out of some deal or party unity, you could have a scenario where, you know, even though it's close, the candidates who came in second, third or fourth say, listen, we have to be Donald Trump. We can't afford to futz around for another two or three months. We just have to start the general election. Is, is that kind of what you're talking about a little more detail? Well, first of all, this is a scenario that has not occurred. So, <laughs> yeah, for sure, right. So right. we're off the radar here yeah, in, right. uh, in discussing it. Uh, listen, I think that you could see uh, the candidates, uh, national uh, political leaders, I think important constituency leaders within the party and organized labor and others uh, speaking out privately, publicly to try and help the party get to an end result that works for all of us in the fall election. And, and I, I hope, I sincerely hope that if we do get to that scenario, that that would be the outcome rather than a bitter fight to the convention and at the convention. And so how that would play out, I mean, you know, that's a political process at that point. And so, uh, again, it would be speculation at this point because we don't even know who the candidates will be if we are in that situation, who will be in that mix and how they might fit together or not fit together. I'm just curious, as you look at the calendar, the, you know, the first states, you know, for the most part, I think are momentum events as opposed to delegate acquisition events, although both Obama and Clinton you know, 08 and 16, you know, were able to yield a decent delegate hall out of South Carolina. What do you think, I mean, if you were to look at a decisive day, I mean, obviously we have, you know, uh, Super Tuesday early in March. You have later in March, if I recall, March 16th or 17th, you know, a day where you've got a lot of big states, Illinois, you know, North Carolina, Arizona. Uh, do you have a sense when you look at the calendar where you think we may reach that point where, you know, there is a winnowing from a delegate standpoint? Well, it, it, it's always hard to predict a cycle. It, it actually was a little bit easier in 2008 and 2016 when we essentially had a two-candidate race 
It was one-on-one, and you could see each candidate's strengths and weaknesses and how they would likely perform in each state on the calendar. And you could factor in momentum as as a uh, component of the analysis. But, I, you know, I felt like I could sort of reliably come up with a, a, a pretty decent prediction. In this cycle, where we may have, as, as we were discussing before, more than two candidates and possibly, you know, significantly more than two candidates coming out of uh, Iowa and the four early states, uh, it's just much less uh, easy to predict. That being said, on Super Tuesday, we have 1,345 delegates. That's a lot of delegates. It's 15 states. Uh, It's a lot of voting. If going into Super Tuesday, we don't have clear leadership, if there is a muddled race, which is what I was describing as possible before, Then on Super Tuesday, you could see that 1,345 delegates being fragmented in multiple directions to different candidates. And and at that point, even at that early point, on the first day of voting outside the early states, you will get your first read on whether there really is a leader who is consolidating a a national delegate lead. And uh, if that's not the case, uh, you know, We're going in the next week on uh, March 10th, which is the next week. I call it Super Tuesday 2.0 because it's got seven states voting with 365 delegates. And one week later, March 17th, is Super Tuesday 3.0 with 577 delegates allocated on one day from four states. So in that period from March 3rd to the 17th, that's a two-week period, you're going to have well over 2,000 delegates being elected, uh, more than half of the delegates in the country. And so certainly by March 17th, uh, if we haven't seen someone consolidate a real lead, and, and remember, there's a difference here between being a plurality leader and a majority leader. So if if we have three or more candidates winning delegates, we could have a plurality leader, but not a majority leader. And then you start to be uh, concerned about different scenarios, even as early as mid-March, that it may be difficult with most of the delegates already picked for that for that leader or, or maybe someone uh, just behind that leader to get to uh, 51%. Um, we mentioned before there is one more major block of voting, which is in late April when the mid-Atlantic states vote, and there are six states electing 662 delegates. And, and certainly by the day of that voting, which is the last Tuesday in April, uh, we will be able to read uh, where the you know where the campaign and the nomination race is headed. But you might have a read. Uh, On March 17th, after that two-week period of intense voting, perhaps even on Super Tuesday itself, the night of Super Tuesday, you you might be able to say, you know what, we just had 1,345 delegates allocated and nobody really ran away with, uh, you know, a big block of them. Right. Or you have a scenario where there's three or four people, you know, credibly alive coming out of South Carolina you know, but only two of them kind of do what's required on March 3rd, Super Tuesday. And then you get down to that, you know, finalists for the 10th and 17th. I think, you know, there's been a lot of attention on Super Tuesday, California, Texas. If you could, Jeff, just remind people the states that are voting on that March 17th, as well as in the mid-Atlantic in April, I think it'd be interesting for people to, to get a refresher on that. Yeah, it's really March 10th and the 17th. And so, On March 10th, so that's the Tuesday right after Super Tuesday, it's one week later, uh, we have three states in the West, Idaho, North Dakota, and Washington State voting, and they have 123 delegates, and Washington State has a lot of delegates. It's got 89 delegates, and it used to be that they voted as a caucus, so now, though, they're going to be voting as a primary. So the type of outcome is going to be different, perhaps, than what we have previously seen in Washington. There's going to be two big Midwestern states, Michigan and Missouri, for a total of 193 delegates. There's going to be one state from the south, uh, 36 delegates uh, from Mississippi. 
So that's on the Tuesday right after Super Tuesday. And they combine for uh, 365 delegates. The Tuesday after that, which is March 17th, we have just four states voting, but all four of those states have a lot of delegates. And it's Arizona with 67, Florida with 219, Illinois with 155, and Ohio with 136. And that's a total of 577 delegates. At that point, uh, you know, all of the sort of the major block voting days are over, except for, I would say, that uh, Mid-Atlantic voting day in late April. And so um, there's, uh, it, it, I wouldn't say that it has any particular regional bias. There's obviously some Midwestern voting in there, uh, both on the March 10th and March 17th, but we also, again, we have Florida, Arizona, Washington State, uh, Mississippi. So there, there are other regions represented also. For sure. And then April, Pennsylvania is the marquee state, but what are the other states on that day? Yeah. So in uh, April, we have uh, that Mid-Atlantic primary on a- April 28th, and it's uh, alphabetically anyway, Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, New York, Pennsylvania, and Rhode Island. So it's both New York, Pennsylvania as the major states, uh, and then there these other mid-Atlantic states. And, and we had a, a similar uh, type of calendar in previous cycles where the mid-Atlantic states have voted together as a group on the fourth Tuesday in April. Geographically, a little easier for the campaign, but that's still some big territory to cover. Well, listen, Jeff Berman, thank you for your time today. I think it's a great tutorial for... You know, the millions of Americans out there who are uh, going to vote in these primaries and caucuses and contribute and volunteer to get a better understanding of how we're going to select our Democratic nominee, the person we hope to to face off against Donald Trump uh, and defeat him. So thanks for your time today. Thank you, David. Well, I thought that was a really informative conversation with Jeff Berman, delegate guru, A few things jumped out at me. Um, One, you know, Jeff captured some of the rule changes this year. You know, Iowa most, I think, interestingly, traditionally, if you don't reach threshold 15%, you know, essentially you get zero in the the results. So this time the media is going to report, you know, based on your raw support. So what that means is, you know, this is fictitious right now, but if we have a leader at 22 and somebody at 18, but another person at 13... In previous caucuses, that 13 would have essentially been zero. So, you know, it's it's feasible you'll have more people coming out of Iowa, quote-unquote, alive. Uh, secondly, less caucuses this time, more primaries. That means uh, electorates that will have higher turnout and a little less dependent on precinct organization, although that obviously is still uh, very important. I thought it was really interesting to hear Jeff go deep into March, where this race will be, well... If you don't do what you need to do in the first four states, you're probably done. You're a political footnote in history. But assuming you've done that, this race will likely be decided in those two weeks in March. And so really interesting uh, to hear him go deep on that. And also to talk about scenarios where we don't have somebody who's clearly going to be the majority pledged delegate leader. And I I think Jeff made a really important point that it doesn't have to wait till Milwaukee and the Democratic Convention if that's the case. That if somebody's the plurality leader and it's clear that they're going to be really difficult to beat, you know, perhaps there's discussions as we get into April and May where folks decide to throw their support behind the person who's emerged as a leader. I think as Democrats, we should all hope that's the case because, um, you know, I think the most precious commodity in politics is time. And if we really have to wait until deep into the summer to start the general election campaign, I think that would be tragic if, if we kind of know who our nominee is going to be. So, again, I think a really interesting conversation. And, and also to hear Jeff really talk about at the congressional district level how important it is to focus on places where you could yield an extra delegate. I mean, I, I've gone through this before. It was an important part of our strategy in 08, but nobody knows this like Jeff. And and to understand that all congressional districts aren't treated equally. And, and so if you're in a state where if we do get down to like a two-person race and there's congressional districts that offer four delegates or six delegates and your assessment of that congressional district is, you know, maybe somebody gets 55, the other one gets 45, you're going to Split the delegates. So you want to focus your time and your money and your staff efforts on places where you could yield an extra delegate. So I know that's not as exciting as, hey, who won the California primary or who eked out a win 
you know, in Texas or Florida. But this could be decided ultimately by the campaign that makes the smartest judgments about how they just grind out, you know, additional delegates. You know, one here and one there and two there. You know, uh, as Jeff pointed out, it's really, really hard to build a delegate lead. But it's just as hard, if not harder, to catch up if, if you're the person who's who's not built that lead. So, again, that's if, for all of you who are paying so close attention to this race. As we get into March, that will probably be the decisive moment when somebody, if there is a somebody, is able to get out to a delegate lead. And if, if they are, it's next to impossible for them to lose it. And so this campaign, ultimately, for all the debates and all the social media activity and videos and speeches, is going to probably come down to that, which is who in this big crowded field can emerge and have both a strategy and an operation to help them build that delegate yield. So again, uh, I know we went deep into delegate land today, into the weeds, but you have to understand it if you're going to both be involved in this process and and follow it. So uh, thanks for listening and look forward to spending time with you all next week.